Amen. Thank you guys very, very much. You guys can all have a seat. It's been an adventurous morning. We started out outside, we set it up and prayed for God to move the rain past and instead there was a bolt of lightning three miles from here and so we said, well, I guess God wants us inside. So we came inside last minute, everybody did everything they needed to and it was an amazing service and um, I hope that today is the same at this hour. Thank you for accommodating the change. My apologies for those who are expecting to be outside. Uh, It just was, uh, we were incapable of making that happen. So thank you for your understanding. Um, You can send all emails to somebody at bayoucityfellowship.com. Just kidding. You can send me an email if you want to. You know, it's, uh, it, it really is the best time of year for me. I love Christmas and all that, but this to me is the best time of year because it reminds us of something sturdy, right? We got to see the kids walking through the palm branches. Kids, you did fantastic. I love having you guys participate, having our students participate. It, it reminds us that we as a family get to worship together. But the palm branches, you know, coming through is, is wonderful. I hate palm branches like when I have to trim them off the tree because palm trees have creepy crawlies in them. They live in the tops. If you've ever had to like cut down coconuts or other palm branches, things live up there. It's disgusting and I don't like it for whatever that's worth. I also, I do enjoy yard work. I do enjoy mowing the lawn. I like the fresh lines that you get when the grass is grown. It's a little uneven and you, for the same reason I like vacuuming. I don't know why, it's just something I like. What I don't like is mowing the grass when it's windy outside. Do you know why? Because you go and you're like, oh, this is fantastic. You blow off the, the sidewalk, you blow off your patio, and then five seconds later you turn around and what happened? All the grass you blew off is right back where it was in the first place. It's super annoying, and I get mad, and I talk to God about it. By God, could you shift a little bit for me? And here's the distinct thing that happens when you tell God to, like, adjust the wind for you. He's like, could you shift a little? And what I realize is this thing about mowing in the wind is, is unfortunately, an illustration of my spiritual life, Right? There are these times where you get it in order because the grass has gotten a little long or the weeds have grown up a little bit. And so you go out there and you do the work. Lord, I'm tilling that soil. Lord, I'm going to do it different. God, I promise this will be different this time. And then what happens? Inevitably, all the stuff ends up right back where it was before. You ever have that experience? Either spiritually and in the real world, we all experience that. We wish that the wind would shift in our, in our favor, right? But spiritually, we are this way, aren't we? Maybe you've been part of a church that's that way. We're going to shift. We're going to change. We're going to do it different. And then what? inevitably, all of a sudden, it's like mowing in the wind. All the stuff you're trying to get rid of and sweep out of the house ends up right back where it was. You know, I don't know what it is that that you work out in your life, but spiritually, we are this way. No different than the Israelites. No different in the book of the Bible. No different in the history of the world. Right, we are all in the same boat, which is really fortunate and also really kind of irritating, isn't it? Nehemiah 13 is no different. We've been talking about this amazing story of how God's people lived in disobedience. They went into exile. They were taken over. Right, and they cried out to the Lord. God raises up people. He raised up Zerubbabel. Right, Remember Zerubbabel? He went and he 
went to rebuild the temple so that God would reside. And he experienced opposition. They overcame the opposition. And then there was this terrible anticlimax and it kind of fell flat on its face and it wasn't what they were hoping it would be. And then uh, Ezra comes, right? He comes to rebuild the community and the same thing, he gets sent out. They go to, to do this great thing. They face opposition, they overcome the opposition and then it all kind of falls flat. And it wasn't really what they were hoping for. And then Nehemiah comes and we've been studying this part of the story, right? Where Nehemiah gets sent by Artaxerxes. He comes, they want to rebuild the wall. The people start coming back. They experience opposition. They, they push through, they finish the wall. And they all, in the last three chapters, Matt and Jeremiah walked us through this covenant, this promise that they made. They found the adjustments. They're like, God, we're going to do this. We promise we're going to follow you. We're going to do what you say. We're going to do what the book says. And we're like, wow, this is great. We finally turned a corner. The patio looks great. The sidewalk's clean. And then you get to chapter 13. Nehemiah has gone back, right, to Artaxerxes to go do his job. And after a time, he comes back to Jerusalem. And what he finds is not what they promised. The grass is back on the patio and the sidewalk's a mess. The temple was being used for personal, um, not God use. They had, a, they had invited Tobiah in. He had some relationship with the priest and they'd invite him, giving him a room in the, in the temple where it was supposed to be a storehouse for things used for the church, for used for the temple. And then he found that people were not honoring the law as they said they would. And they were not just working on the Sabbath, they were, they were selling and buying and they were doing things for selfish gain on the Sabbath. And the community was not working the way it was supposed to. And then he goes to the walls to inspect the walls and they are using the walls as a backdrop to do selfish things. In fact, not what they had agreed to. And the book starts with this really hopeful note, doesn't it? It starts with this idea of God providing a way and these three stories start the same way and then it ends in disappointment. And you sit and you go, what does a book like that have to do? Why is it even in there? And I think it's because this is the story of our life, isn't it? This is the story of our life. Have you ever tried to plan anything in the last year and a half? Hey, maybe by the summer we'll get a chance to... Never mind. Hey, what if we plan for next summer? We could start that one. Th All right, well, maybe not. Hey, let's do that youth camp, but nope. The, the classic wah, wah is like the soundtrack of our life right now, right? Everything's hopeful. I hope for the summer. I hope for the, maybe next fall. Uh, right? Or our relationships, we put our hope in these relationships with people. Those stinking people, if it weren't for the people. Right, we're hopeful. Oh, that girl's got going on. I hope something can work out. Oh, that boy, he is so nice. He is probably the one. He's probably never gonna have anything wrong with him. I bet you all those nice things he says is forever. That girl is always gonna be this nice to me. Man, that pastor. <laughs> Why'd you laugh at that one? You should have laughed at the other two were funnier than that one. 
That would give me a whole, see, now I'm disappointed. All those people are going to be nice to you. No, and what happens is every single time, what happens? Disappointment. Because the things we put our hope in are less than what we need. And this is what the people did. They had done all of these amazing things to fix the temple and to fix the community and to fix the wall. What they didn't do is tend to the thing that they really needed, which was to fix the nature of their hearts. Because their spiritual, uh, their spiritual condition had remained unchanged, even though they'd fixed all these other things. None of the efforts addressed the matters of the heart. And this is what the Bible talks about over and over and over, right? Over and over and over, the Pharisees were, that Jesus told them that, hey, you guys are nice and clean on the outside, but you guys are wicked on the inside, right? Your life, you, you check all the boxes so that everybody can see how religious you are, but on the inside, you're wicked. You are spewing hate and, and murder with your mouth, right? You are not living according to the word. And he points over and over that there is this need, that there is something to hope in that won't disappoint, but it's not what you think. It's not who you think, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a, a military leader, for instance. They didn't need a military leader to lead them into victory, right? Israel didn't need that. They didn't need a political leader to lead them to overthrow the government they were under. That's not what they needed. They put their hope in that, right? Israel was waiting for this because the time when Jesus came, which we'll get to in a minute, right? They were not living on the top, they were under rule and they were hoping that they would not be under that rule anymore. Ezekiel 36 tells us that, that God is interested in giving us something new, but that new thing is not a new wall or a new temple or a new community. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 36 Verses 24 to 26. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. Not I'm gonna rebuild your wall, not I'm gonna rebuild the temple, but I'm gonna cleanse you from your impurities. Those are things on the inside. And from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The thing you need is on the inside. And we find the contemporary of Nehemiah. I find it interesting. The story of Nehemiah ends with disappointment, a looking to something different, something else, because what they had wasn't working. They obviously couldn't do it on their own, right? The, all the Old Testament points to the same promise. There has to be something else, but what is it? Who is it? Zechariah says it like this. He was a contemporary of Nehemiah, so in the same time that Nehemiah lived, also Zechariah lived. And here's what he talks about, the promise to come, the thing that you're looking for, the hope that won't disappoint. Here's what he says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Have you guys anybody seen Aladdin? Either the new one or the original? The better one? 
If you were a king coming into the city of your people, how would you come? Prince Ali, you guys would do it with elephants and rhinos and giraffes and the dancing people and the lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, right? You would. And it would be this pomp and circumstance. You would make sure it's on all the networks, that it's live on YouTube, Facebook Live, Insta Stories, and you would be selfing the whole thing because you're awesome. Because you're a king. This is how worldly human kings operate. And if you think you're more righteous than me, I don't think so. None of us are that humble. Prince Ali, the reason we like that scene is because Prince Ali does it right, right? I mean, he's got all of it. He's got the fly robe and the big turban and everybody is looking at him because somewhere deep down inside, that's what we're looking for because that's what great kings do, right? They're highly promoted, highly touted. This is what happens. And we vote for kings, right? This is what we do. And it's a popular, this is what kings do, popularity contest. Prince Ali Ababwa. That's what we do. The Romans, in fact, when their kings, when people would come after a great victory, they would come with great pomp and circumstance with the parade and the ticker tape. And it's like, it's like the Super Bowl parade. Throwing the trophies off the boat. Few of you are paying attention to the NFL, that's fine. <laughs> Let me just finish this. The coming of Zion's king, the coming of the promise. Here's how the promise of God came into the scene. Zechariah prophecies this. He says, See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then in verse 11 and 12, it says, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Listen, return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. When's the last time you described your circumstance as a prisoner of hope? Man, I just feel like a prisoner right now. Of hope? <laughs> Said no one ever. Right? We don't, we don't talk of prisoners of hope. That means we are bound to this thing that is unshakable and unmovable and irregardless of the circumstances, I have hope. I can see a future and I have a purpose. I'm a prisoner of hope. What are you a prisoner to? Because he says, look, your king, this promise that you're waiting for is sure. And as you are chained to Christ, you have hope. John chapter one, we hear how he actually comes on the scene after this prophecy. They were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting between Malachi and Matthew, about 400 years of silence. And then what happens? He comes on the scene and he says, John one tells us that God became flesh. Right, this wasn't some earthly king coming into a city. This is the mighty God. This is Yahweh. This is the one who gave life and breath to all humanity. The one who created the stars and the sun and the moon and the expanse. He's the one that made centipedes for whatever reason. And he's also the one that made robins. He's the one that caused grass to grow the way that it does. He is the creator of the universe put in human form so that he could dwell among us to be with us. So he wasn't a far off God, but a very present right now with you, God. 
And the promise was for hope and for a future. Pretty incredible, huh? John chapter 12, just so that you know the prophets of God who speak on God's behalf. This was fulfilled in John chapter 12. It says the next day, this is after they saw Lazarus raised from the dead. After he was anointed in Bethany, it says this. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches. See, kids, this is why we do it. They took palm branches, it was signs of peace, and they would lay it down so that as he's walking in on this dusty road, he was walking on symbols of peace. Isn't that interesting? They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means save. They were saying, save us. When you're by yourself and you've hit that point, you're like, save me. Who are you crying out? This is what they're crying out. Save me. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt, and that's from Zechariah. They also were speaking Psalm 118, what we read earlier, is a messianic psalm talking about the coming Christ. And that sounds all good, but what does that actually mean for us? This triumphal entry, this Jesus coming onto the scene, why we celebrate Palm Sunday. The reason is because we all are looking for that thing that will give us sturdy foundational hope that won't disappoint, right? What it meant for these people, some of them were like, finally, we're gonna get out from under Roman rule. And they were looking for Jesus to come in power and to set them free from earthly rule. That's not why he came. That's not what he did. The Romans were a little nervous this triumphal entry, the Roman guards there were probably snickering a little bit if they overheard somebody say the triumphal entry. It's not in the scriptures, this little conjecture because they were used to like the pomp and circumstance. So for them to say, oh, the triumphal entry of our King Jesus and he's on a colt coming in real humble, they probably were like, who's this guy? You know? You know what it meant for the religious meant that their way probably wasn't it and they'd missed it. See, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, people who had studied the word of God at that time, the Pentateuch, we talked about the law of Moses, should have known that this was the time. They should have known because it was written out for history, all in their scriptures and prophets and Psalms, everything pointed to the coming of Jesus as the Christ. And they missed it because it meant that they weren't in control anymore. It meant that they weren't the boss anymore. It meant that it couldn't be their way anymore. It had to be his way. What does this mean for us? What are you waiting for? Have you been waiting for something? Have you been waiting for the fix to that thing? Have you been looking for a new leader? Have you been looking for a savior? Have you been looking for this hope that won't disappoint because you have figured out finally that every person, system, structure will disappoint you at some point? Or have you been waiting for the, the thing or person who will not disappoint you? 
This promise that was given to the people in Nehemiah's day is the same promise that is given to you today. That what you're waiting for is and will always be found in the person of Jesus Christ. The sturdy foundation, the hope and the the need that you have will always be found in the person of Jesus. And so as we celebrate the coming of the promise, we're celebrating the coming of a savior. Here's how it works. He didn't come because he had to. God did not send his son because he had to. The Bible says that he loved you too much to let you stay separated from him due to your sin and my sin and the death that that causes. And he said, I want them in my family again. I want them to be with me in an intimate relationship. And so, because that takes holiness and perfection, he sent Jesus who lived a perfect life, the one we couldn't, right? We were like the Israelites. God, I promise I'll do better this time. God, I'm sweeping off my patio. I'm sweeping off my sidewalk. And then five minutes later, that, those winds change, don't they? And we end up right back where we started. And he says, I know that you can't do it, but Jesus did. And it says that those who believe, that they receive that through faith and confession, that God raised it from the dead, the Bible says that we will have a secure eternity that won't disappoint. But it takes this one thing, surrender. It takes this one thing to receive Jesus as who he is and not who you want him to be. He might not be your political leader. He might not be your military leader. He might not make it your way, right? God's kingdom is not Burger King. He doesn't make it your way. He makes it his way. And it's our job to settle into that and under it. So this Palm Sunday, we celebrate the coming of the promise that gives us real lasting hope, real lasting life. And he deals with a heart because we can fix all the things, right? We can fix all the stuff and we should. All of the things that are broken in this world that cause hurt and pain, I think it's necessary for us to engage in those things and work towards lasting solutions. But if we don't deal with the matters of the heart, it's all gonna fall apart again anyway. So don't just receive the promise today. Give it also. Palm Sunday, Easter, all these things are not just about getting something for yourself. It's about sharing this promise with the world. Let's pray together. Father, I do ask that you would help us to um, settle into this. God, we celebrate the coming of Jesus, the coming of true hope, the coming of real life that lasts. God, thank you that we get to worship together as family. God, that our kids are with us and our students are with us and we can just be together. God, I would just ask that you would let your words sink into our hearts. Prepare us for next week. Prepare us for the resurrection, God, as we work through Good Friday and feel the mourning of the loss of Jesus. But allowing that anticipation of the resurrection to really not just overtake us but to infuse us with hope 
and reinvigorate our purpose on this earth. Those of you who would be available to help pray, those of you who are up here, would you make your way up here? And we're gonna spend a time praying together. If you don't know Jesus and today's the day you realize that you would like to enter into that relationship, please, please, please come talk to us. Those of you who just need prayer, maybe you're suffering, maybe you are hurting, come pray. Maybe you want somebody just to hear and celebrate with you. We want to do that with you as well. If you would, let's stand together. And as we worship with this last song, I pray that our hearts would be filled with so much joy because this is not an out there promise, but a right now promise that we would celebrate and worship in a new way today. Let's do that now. Come and pray if you need. Let's worship.